1450 AM, WKXL, 103.9 in the Capital Region, 101.9 in the Manchester area. It is Kale & Company. We're presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord. You can call them for an appointment right now at 603-225-7988, weedfamilyautomotive.com. And our guest today on this edition of Kale & Company is Clayton Cruder. And Clayton is the author of a new book entitled Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. And uh, Clayton, great to have you with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Ken. I appreciate it. Well, it is certainly uh, my pleasure. And uh, before we talk about your book, and uh, I have not had the opportunity to read it as yet, I must tell you, but uh, can't, can't wait uh, let's, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, your background. I, uh, I am a historian. I, I teach at Norwich University in Vermont. I, uh, have a PhD in U.S. history from Boston College. My focus is modern, modern American history, and this book is a product of my doctoral dissertation, um, which was originally focused on the history of pro sports franchise relocations. And from starting my dissertation until the book coming out, it's been a been a ten-year process, so I've been I've been working on Atlanta and thinking about it for for quite some time. Well, interesting. And uh, so, what what inspired you to to write this book? Uh, as you mentioned, you were going to do it on uh, franchise relocation, which certainly is involved in this with uh, the Milwaukee Braves moving to Atlanta. But was that the uh, the inspiration for this book? Well, well, partially, in, in a broader sense, my original idea for my dissertation topic was to write about the impact that franchise relocations politically, economically, culturally had had on cities across North America over the past half century. My advisor very wisely told me, uh, that will take you 50 years. Pick a city that is emblematic of the shifts you want to discuss. And Atlanta, uh, I guess, is as emblematic of the shifts I wanted to cover as anything. Atlanta is the first city to go out um, and, in writ large, pursue pro sports, try to get teams from all the major professional sports leagues, to roll out the red carpet to the big leagues, both their political and corporate leadership, uh, and to build two publicly financed stadiums, Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, the Omni uh, Coliseum, which become homes to the Atlanta Braves of Major League Baseball, the Atlanta Falcons of the National Football League, the Atlanta Flames of the National Hockey League, and the Atlanta Hawks of the National Basketball Association. Certainly there had been franchise relocations before, but as I got reading about it, typically they were more one-off things. Los Angeles, for example, wanted baseball. San Francisco wanted baseball. Atlanta wanted to be seen as a big league city, a major city culturally as it had become economically. And, of course, there weren't at that time uh, many southern cities uh, that had uh, professional sports franchises, let alone ultimately all four. Basically, there was no pro sports between Washington, D.C. and uh, Texas at that time period. And um, for the Southeast in particular, Atlanta became the first city in the region to, to gain pro sports, and they did so in very rapid succession. In 1965, Atlanta has no major professional sports teams. College football is popular there. Stock car racing, golfing, boating. They had minor league baseball, but no major pro sports. By 1972, Atlanta has two gleaming new sports facilities, and teams in all four of the major pro sports leagues. Now, uh, Fulton County Stadium and the Omni were both totally with uh, public dollars, correct? 
Well, the, the, the Omni is a little bit different. It's publicly financed in, in the sense that the city helps float the municipal bonds. Uh, eventually, though, they had, they had a mayor named Sam Massel at the time who was a real estate lawyer and brought a lot of that understanding to the situation. He created a deal where it was primarily the ticket buyers and people who, who uh, parked at a particular parking deck, which was owned by the, the owner of both the Hawks and Flames, a guy named Tom Cousins, who is known as Mr. Atlanta because he's such a significant real estate developer there. He becomes, his entities become the ones that primarily help to finance the Omni. So it's publicly financed in the sense that the city floated the bond, but it ended up being Cousins and his properties that uh, repaid that one. In the case of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, it's purely a property tax paying for it. I mean, every homeowner was paying for that stadium. There's a tendency now to use different approaches to pay for stadiums, have lottery tickets, taxes on alcohol, on cigarettes. A particularly popular means now is the idea of taxing out-of-towners with taxes on rental cars, taxes on hotel rooms. So cities have become a lot more creative in ways to finance stadiums and also not to put the burden quite as much on their own taxpayers. So let's talk about the, the first uh, shift and the first uh, major league team in, in Georgia, in Atlanta, and uh, that was the, the Braves that uh, moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta. So uh, tell us about how uh, that all transpired and how that took off. It really started when a, a group of young businessmen from Chicago bought the Braves. The Braves had originally been in Boston until 1953, a guy named Lou Perini, who was a major construction uh, and uh, real estate developer in Boston, uh, ended up relocating the team to Milwaukee. The Braves had always been kind of the number two team in town. Moves them to Milwaukee. They have a lot of success. Perini decides he eventually just wants to get out of the sports business, sells the team in the early 1960s. This group of young, uh, of, of young investors, Chicago-based, generally the sons of wealthy industrialists in the city, they, when they buy the Braves, get the idea by looking to Green Bay just down the road from them in uh, Milwaukee on how to make some money for their team. The Green Bay Packers are very famously financed through fans who buy stocks in the team to support the redevelopment of the stadium and the financing of the, uh, of the team. Uh, the Braves decide to hold their own stock sale. It does not go very well. These are new guys. They're from out of town. People in Milwaukee, I always look at people from Chicago with a little bit of suspicion that they're the big city guys trying to, trying to pull one over on them, and that was generally the attitude of people in Milwaukee. Um, the Braves put up 120,000 shares of stock for sale. They sold like 15,000 of them, and from that moment onward, the Milwaukee Braves owners were looking for a new home for their team. Attendance had dwindled, and there were some other local factors, but it was primarily because the stock sale had gone so badly. And you have Atlanta, which is so seriously aspiring to become a big league town. They elected a guy named Ivan Allen Mayor in 1961 who ran on a platform with a major plank called Major League City, focused on bringing in pro sports as a means of uniting a community with lots of different kinds of divisions, whether it was transplants and, and, uh, and, and native, suburban, urban, racial divisions, in part because this is still the Jim Crow South, uh, although Atlanta was probably the most progressive city in the region at the time. But nonetheless, they, they thought uh, Allen and the Atlanta city leadership saw sports as a potential unifier and also a source of prestige for the city, something that would put its name alongside Los Angeles and Chicago and New York in the standings. So Atlanta is very eagerly pursuing pro sports. The Braves are looking for a new home, and those two interests end up coming together. Uh, and the Braves sign a lease to come play in Atlanta. There's a protracted legal battle for control of the Milwaukee franchise. 
they actually have to play a lame duck season in Milwaukee in 1955 as the legal proceedings between Milwaukee County and Atlanta are, are unfolding over the future of the franchise. So that's this, this long protracted way is how the Braves end up in Atlanta. So when was uh, Fulton County Stadium built, or when was it uh, started to, to be built, and when was it completed? It was the 51-week wonder. I, I've, I've been a, unable to find a major post-sports stadium built as quickly as Atlanta wow. Fulton County Stadium. 51 weeks. In October 1964, they sign the lease with the Milwaukee Braves. They start the stadium the following March. They have it finished by, by the, the following opening day. It's a 51-week stadium, and in some ways it kind of showed uh, later on. A lot of the, um, the particulars of building a stadium in terms of um, making sure it was a well, well set, the, 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 um, the stands and everything, uh, was, were not done as well as many other stadiums. So grime and, and lots of other unpleasant things began to show up very, very prominently in the, in the um, structure within a few years, more so than its other peer stadiums built during the 1960s. If you compare it to, say, the Astrodome in right. Houston, it took three years to build that. Right. Uh, Bush Stadium in St. Louis, two and a half years. This thing got flashed together as quick as they possibly could, so they were ready to host a big league team. Wow, that, that is something. So how did it, how did it begin in, in 1966? Uh, how, did it, uh, how did, it get off, did it get off to a good start? A pr- pretty good, although probably not as good as the team had in Milwaukee. The Braves drew a little under 1.5 million fans which was middle of the pack in the National League in 1966. The team had expected they would be the best-drawing team in the league. There'd be so much enthusiasm for them uh, in, in year one that people from across the Southeast would take advantage of a new opportunity to stick big league baseball. They, in fact, were a middle-of-the-pack drawing team. When the Milwaukee Braves had, had, first, um, had first appeared in 1953, they actually drew 1.8 million people, and Milwaukee was a smaller city then than Atlanta was by 1966. So a lot of people were disappointed by the, the attendance figures, and part is because the Braves somewhat surprisingly struggled in their first year in town. In 65 in Milwaukee, despite it being a lame duck year, the Braves had been in first place for much of the season in the National, in the national League. They faded late, though. Um, but conversely, the Braves had a very poor start in 1966 and were out of the race early. They later played better as the season went on, but their, their first manager of the Atlanta Braves, a guy named Bobby Bragan, got fired in uh, early August. So it, it didn't go quite as anticipated. And in the early years, the Braves teams tended to, to underachieve. They had a lot of very powerful hitters with the likes of Aaron and Matthews and Rico Cardi in their early years. Their pitching was just starting to come around, though. I mean, eventually they have Phil Necro and Ron Reed, uh, Hoyt Wilhelm briefly, some very good pitchers. But uh, Atlanta was also very much a hitter's park, so it exaggerated the hitting strength they had. At the time, Atlanta was the highest elevation city in the big leagues. So it, the stadium came to be known as the launching pad because so many home runs got hit there, both for the opponents and also for the Braves. So how long did it take for fans to start staying away in droves? Really by the early 1970s. In 1969 is the first year of the four-division configuration in baseball, and the Braves somewhat surprisingly won the National League West uh, that, that year. It's kind of odd that Atlanta ended up in that division. And that proved to be one of the problems they faced. They ended up traveling more than any other team in baseball, having a, 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 a huge West Coast-type schedule. But the Braves surprisingly win the NL West, have a very good draw that season, lose to the Mets in the very famous uh, National League Championship Series. The Mets go on and win the World Series. But the Braves, beginning in 1971, failed to draw one million fans. 
which at the time was the minimum threshold of acceptable attendance in the big leagues. And for the next 10 seasons, the Braves each year failed to draw 1 million fans. So by the early 70s, apathy has set in locally about this team. When did the uh, the Falcons hit the scene? They arrive in the fall of 1966. Mm-hmm. And the minute Atlanta starts construction on that stadium, the NFL and the, and the competing American Football League, which eventually merge, um, they go from not giving Atlanta the time of day to suddenly fighting tooth and nail for who gets to have Atlanta. Uh, there's a significant arms race between the leagues competing for which uh, which league will get the uh, team. It eventually ends up in NFL City. They start in the fall of 1966, and like many other places in the South, Atlanta was a football-mad market. Friday night high school football, Saturday Georgia Tech and Georgia football had long been huge events in the city, in the, city and the, in the region. The Falcons initially draw well, but end up having a lot of struggles um, in terms of attendance, in terms of particularly the issue of no-shows. Pro football, most tickets are purchased as part of season ticket packages because it's a relatively short schedule compared to, say, baseball or basketball or hockey. So by the mid-'70s, the Falcons struggle in the standings throughout their early years in town as an expansion team. Um, they, they don't make the NFL playoffs until 1978. In 1974, more than 40% of the tickets that got purchased for Falcons games went unused that season. People bought a season ticket because they may have wanted to go see the Packers or go see the Colts or some specific team on the schedule. Um, there were a lot of fairly affluent ticket buyers in, in the region. But the idea of going in December and sitting and watching the Falcons play against the last place team did not appeal to people. There were two different games in the 1974 season. The Falcons were a 3-11 and team that year, so they weren't terribly compelling. There were two different games that season in which the Falcons had more than 40,000 no-shows the home games. Mm. Just a few thousand people in the stands, every ticket paid for, but just this empty venue, which looked, looked pretty bad on television. Yeah. So, obviously, at that point in time, the, the Falcons were, were selling more tickets. I mean, I know the season is much shorter, but selling more tickets than the Braves. And were, were they the more popular team from, uh, let's say, 66 through 74? I would say probably not, though, because baseball had, baseball had a very significant summer television audience. Mm-hmm. And there was also more re- more regional appeal for the Braves because the Braves from the, their first day were broadcast between 20 and 30 times a year on WSB, uh, which was the big local television station and also on a broader regional network. There were lots of people in the Carolinas and Florida and Alabama and Tennessee who became Braves fans as a result. Locally, the Falcons may have been more popular, but as a regional draw, the Braves were certainly more of one. If you went to a Braves game in the summertime, there were always lots of Boy Scout troops and church groups and other kind of civic organizations that would get a busload of people and come to Braves games. Uh, one of the, they had a couple of problems with attendance when it came to the fall. First of all, there's school groups, and on the weekend, they just couldn't compete with high school football or college football. There were many Friday nights when in Fulton County, there were five or six different high school games that drew like 10,000 people and the Braves had three or 4,000 people in the stands watching. So that it, proved, it proved a very difficult situation for them to compete with a lot of the, the, the existing local sporting interests. Well, you mentioned the, the Braves being on WSB uh, in Atlanta, and then uh, the Superstation came along, TBS, Ted Turner's creation, the Superstation, and the Braves became America's team. What, what year was that when uh, TBS was, uh, was first on the air? Well, t- 
CBS is, it was originally called WTCG. It okay. was a UHF station in Atlanta. And yeah. Turner, Turner takes control of that station in 1973. The Braves' contract is up for availability, in part because they hadn't actually drawn that well on television in the early 70s. So as opposed to WSB, which was probably the most prominent broadcaster in the South, uh, being the place that the Braves' games were located, they were suddenly on this upstart UHF station. And Turner is had what you expect out of PBS, a lot of reruns and old movies and Braves baseball. That's how it was in the early 70s, too, yeah. once he got the team. He starts broadcasting pretty much every game to a fairly large regional audience. And um, eventually, when the Braves come up for sale after the 1975 season, he, he purchases the team. His network is starting to get going. He's trying to expand. He's using the satellite technology that HBO had already been using to broadcast across the country, and his whole superstation concept is, is, is coming into being. He buys the Braves primarily to serve as inexpensive programming for his TV station. They're already on, but he doesn't want to lose his bread and butter with, with that because the Braves owners considered selling the team to groups in Toronto and Seattle, who very shortly thereafter got American League teams, as well as uh, there was a discussion about the Braves splitting half of their home games with New Orleans at the new Louisiana Superdome, the Braves would play their part of the season. So Turner saves the Braves for Atlanta. He also saves the Hawks, whom he purchases one year later. The Hawks certainly struggled in the standings throughout, not in the standings, struggled at the box office in the early years in town. When they got to Atlanta, they actually had a fairly good team from St. Louis, but uh, the, the, the success of the team as well as their popularity waned quickly. So he saves two different franchises who may well have left town and then they served as anchors for his, his programming on TBS in the 70s, 80s, and onward. Yeah. Uh, and, and what impact uh, did that have when, when, you know, virtually every game? And I, I remember it even here in New England watching the Braves a lot on, on TBS. But what impact did that have uh, on attendance? It, it, initially, I, I would say it didn't exactly have a positive impact. I think the local perception of the Braves remained in place for quite a few years. They failed until 1980 to draw a million fans. What did change, though, is that they suddenly had a national audience, that there might be a couple of million people around the country watching these games. In the early 80s, the Braves began to turn things around. In 1982, they again win the National League West, somewhat surprisingly. They began the season with a 13-game winning streak, which nobody's ever done before, and that got them a lot of national attention. In 1982, Sports Illustrated did a profile about how the country was becoming Braves country because of TBS. They talked to people in Bismarck, North Dakota, and Reno, Nevada, and Anchorage, Alaska, mm-hmm. who were suddenly diehard Braves fans right. because they had access to this on television. For a while, I mean, by, because of that season, attendance certainly picked up for a couple of years. But something that Turner had done in some of his early years running the team was to take people who had bought a bleacher seat move them behind home plate so it looks better for television. Ah. It looks so it looked like there was a crowd there. Um, I mean, they, they, they always shot the games tightly just so that you didn't see that you had this cavernous, empty 55,000-seat stadium with a few thousand people all lodged behind home plate. So Turner had a lot of promotional dial and, and, and found a way to keep things going, despite the team being only uh, marginally profitable in many of its uh, early years. Ted Turner, always the smart marketer for sure. No, <laughs> no doubt Indeed. about that. No doubt about it. We have to take a quick break. Our, our guest today on Kale & Company is Clayton Cruder, and he is the author of a new book called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. We'll have more of this uh, great conversation coming up right here on AM 1450 WKXL. 
1039 in the Capital Region, 1019 in the Manchester area, all presented by Weed Family Automotive of Concord. Welcome back. It's Kalen Company. Great to have you with us today. And our guest on this edition of the program is Clayton Truder. And Clayton is the author of a new book, Loserville is the name of it, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. We've been talking mostly about the Braves, a little bit about the Falcons. When did the Hawks uh, move from St. Louis to Atlanta? The Hawks came in the fall of 1968. They'd been in St. Louis for 13 seasons and had done very well in St. Louis in the early years. They were both a very successful team. They won the NBA's Western Division five straight seasons. They won an NBA championship. Really, as the Celtics dynasty got going in the late 50s, uh, they were the primary rival in the Western Conference and met on several occasions in the uh, league championship series. Uh, a number of aspects to the St. Louis market ended up uh, creating a tough situation for their owner, Ben Kerner. Um, suddenly, they had a lot more sporting competition in the region. You had the St. Louis Blues hockey team who showed up, who were competing directly against them in the winter, peeling off some of their potential appeal, particularly as the Hawks began to struggle a little bit in the standings. Uh, you had the, the Hawks played at a very bad arena called the Keel Auditorium, which was half a basketball arena and half a theater for orchestra. So <laughs> orchestra sounds would bleed into the basketball arena and basketball would bleed into the orchestra. At the time when they, when they, when they came into the league in 55, it was kind of a middle-of-the-pack arena in the NBA. But as the NBA expanded into larger and larger markets, they, they got into better, better buildings. And the Keel Auditorium by the late 60s was one of the weaker ones in the, in the, in the league. And frankly, a major problem that the, the Hawks faced uh, in uh, St. Louis was in the early 60s when they'd been a very successful team, they had a predominantly white roster. By the late 60s, they had a predominantly black roster. And clearly the fan base proved unwilling to support them during this time period. Even though the team, by the, by the time they were leaving town, was a very good team, the 1967-68 edition of the Hawks had Lenny Wilkins and Delmo Beatty and Bill Bridges and Paul Silas and a very good group of players. They had a coach named Richie Guerin, who'd been a very successful player for the Knicks. And the, the Hawks were uh, the Western Division champion the year that they ended up leaving town. Attendance, though, had plummeted. The Hawks had once averaged like 10,000 people a game and were down to like 5,500. Atlanta is continuing its pursuit of pro sports. There's a guy named Tom, Tom, Tom Cousins in Atlanta who's a major real estate investor, and he is not a basketball fan. When he bought the Hawks, he admitted the only player in the NBA he'd ever heard of was Wilt Chamberlain, but he wanted to, to help rebuild downtown Atlanta. He bought up an old train yard called the Gulch and was looking to have big developments there, both an arena and also a larger uh, multi-use development. And he bought a basketball team clearly with that in mind. He also gets into hockey for the same reason. So Cousins buys the, buys the Hawks. Um, they relocate to Atlanta, and um, they attendance life struggle from the outset. Some of the problems they faced in St. Louis, which were a matter of, this is, this is the city in the Jim Crow South. The Hawks continued to have a predominantly black roster. The fan base proved unwilling to support that team in the early years. And despite being a very good team early on in Atlanta, they, uh, they, they were a contender in the Western Division a couple straight years, did not draw well. They averaged 3,500, 4,000 wow. people a game. And they played initially at the Alexander Memorial Coliseum, which was Georgia Tech's basketball gym, which was almost like a glorified high school gym at the time. So they had a bad building. They had, a, they had an, uh, uh, I guess, an indifferent fan base to the team. Um, 
fortunes begin to change a little bit, at least attendance-wise, when, when they signed Pete Maravich, who was the most prominent college player in the country at the time. He'd been a big star at LSU, was the all-time leading college basketball scorer, and also a major draw in the South. But even that really didn't turn things around for the Hawks. As the Hawks' roster had turnover, the team began to struggle uh, in the standings, and also attendance just didn't improve as people thought it was going to, having this big attraction with Maravich. People might come to see him a couple of times, but having the durable loyalty one would hope from a fan base just didn't happen with the Hawks when they got to town. Mm. And and when did they move into the Omni? 1972, the, the fall of 72. It's a beautiful new arena, $18 million facility, plush theater seats, um, definitely one of the best, best new arenas of its era. In spite of that, the draw continued to be poor, in part because the Hawks struggled. Um, and in part, it proved there was a lack of interest in uh, basketball in the region. Frequently, professional wrestling, which, had, which, which performed a mile away from the Omni at the city's old armory, which was built during the Cleveland administration, there would be 5,000 people, a standing room-only crowd, on many Friday nights, hooting and hollering, going crazy, watching pro wrestling. There'd be 3,500 people at the Omni with Pete Maravich playing and people sitting in plush theater seats to watch that. So people... When pro sports came to Atlanta, people just didn't simply give up on the things that had previously interested them. Pro wrestling had drawn a, a wildly popular fan base for much for many decades in Atlanta, and it continued to do so even after uh, institutions like the Hawks got to town. Yeah, and then uh, the, first, uh, the the Flames came in uh, when? What year? Nineteen seventy-two. Okay, and that was kind of a marriage of convenience, I would call it. The NHL suddenly had competition from the World Hockey Association, an yep. upstart yep. competing league, and the two leagues were fighting over markets. And it didn't matter whether the market had an interest in hockey or not. The Omni was being built in Atlanta. You had, you had the Atlanta city leaders very amped about the idea of getting a pro hockey team simply so they could have teams in all four of the major leagues. Cousins very willing to invest in it. So the, uh, the NHL places a team in Atlanta. Um, the state of Georgia did not have an ice rink at it, in it at the time when the Flames got to town. There had been one pro hockey team of any kind in the South in, in its entire history. There had been a team in Knoxville for eight years in the 60s uh, that played in the uh, East Coast Hockey League. But the South had no history of hockey when the Flames arrived. There are certainly a lot of NHL franchises now in the region, but um, it was very much an anomaly. The, the Flames were on an island when they got to town. And they actually both performed and drew quite well when they, when they got into Atlanta. Um, they had a season ticket base approaching 10,000 for several seasons. They made the playoffs in six of their eight years in town. So they, they, they thought that they were a very novel attraction. They had a very good general manager named Cliff Fletcher who went, went on to become the general manager of the Calgary Flames after the Atlanta Flames moved out of town, later led them to a Stanley Cup championship. Um, they, they, they built a very defense-oriented team. Uh, Fletcher had been the general manager or the assistant GM of the Montreal Canadiens for much of the 60s. He essentially got the Canadiens spitbacks and brought them to, uh, to Atlanta and built a, a, a solid and competitive team. And there ended up being, being some local interest in it. Uh, a lot of affluent consumers came to see hockey as a, as a very prestigious or a, a, a novel might out in Atlanta. Uh, the stadium was right downtown. Uh, nearby was Underground Atlanta, which at the time was a major... Uh, nightclub, restaurant, bar kind of venue. So a lot of people would go to a Flames game and then continue their evening over at Underground Atlanta. So it was uh, the Flames games were something of a 
uh, late night hotspot for um, uh, affluent consumers in Atlanta for several years. Things eventually had a bit of a downturn, and, and the team ends up moving in 1980. Primarily, though, not because of the team's success on the ice or its appeal to fans, but because the owner, Tom Cousins, got into some hot water with some of his real estate investments. Around the Omni Coliseum, he had built a larger development known as the Omni International Complex. It is now the CNN Center. He sold it to Turner in 1986. Um, and it became, it opened in 75. By 1978, it was the largest real estate bankruptcy in U.S. history. And he was looking to get out from under this, uh, this white elephant, this flop of an investment in this development. And he ends up uh, selling his team to some oil men from uh, Alberta who pay him $20 million for a team he had paid $8 million for eight years earlier. And um, it, they end up playing in the arena that became the hockey arena for the 1988 Calgary Olympics. And Atlanta, despite having a fair amount of success with hockey, ends up losing that team, which is, is kind of interesting among Atlanta's four initial pro sports teams, because I would argue pound for pound, the Flames ended up doing the best of the four teams in terms of having appeal and also uh, success on, in their sport. That's that's intriguing, really. I, I never looked at it that way. But so so were the uh, demographics uh, of Atlanta uh, a big reason for for the struggles that uh, some of the teams or a couple of the teams anyway had to uh, you know survive financially? Was it the, the makeup uh, demographically of the of the yeah. region? Yeah, in a few different ways. Um, I mean, I, I think probably the most significant one is just how spread out Atlanta is. If, if, if for anyone who's been there. It, when you think about Atlanta, you think about driving. It is spread out over a 21-county metropolitan area. Um, the people in Atlanta, somebody calculated, drive more than anyone else on Earth on average because of the, the length of the commute times there in and out of the city. Or people who live way out and then commute to a suburb uh, for work. So you have a lot of people who are driving 30, 40 miles a day into work, um, going back home, then expecting people to come back into town for a game with their family, that proved a very tough sell. So how spread out Atlanta was made it a, a tough situation having these two downtown stadiums. Uh, it's also a city with a lot of transplants from other parts of the country. Uh, people from, from Boston or Philadelphia or Chicago or Detroit who have existing loyalties and may occasionally attend a game, but durable loyalties to the team or even becoming more casual fans of the team, I think proves a tough sell for a lot of Atlanta's sports teams because so many people are coming from other parts of the country. Um, also, there's a lot of transplants from across the South itself, too. I think when people think of transplants coming to cities like Atlanta, they typically think of people coming from the North, coming from the Midwest. But a lot of them are people from other parts of the South who maintain their local affiliations there, too, with college football, uh, among other things. Um, there's, there's, there's also the um, issue Atlanta has with the local fans. Um, it's not like sports weren't popular in Atlanta before the big leagues got to town. College football was wildly popular. Georgia and Georgia Tech both had massive fan bases. Um, Georgia obviously just won the national championship. was in the 60s and 70s just really building into what it is now. Uh, the size of the University of Georgia and also the size of their football stadium doubled between 1960 and the early 1980s. So they're really evolving into the major institution they became. Georgia Tech had been a big deal since the very early part of the 20th century. They'd won national titles back in the teens. The Heisman Trophy is named after their most famous coach, John Heisman. Uh, into the 60s and 70s, there was a problem uh, for people if you had an obituary in the Atlanta newspapers and you mentioned you were a Georgia Tech alum, you would start getting phone calls from people saying, hey, did 
uh, your your dead father have season tickets? If so, I'd like to buy them from you. <laughs> I mean, for yeah. years, people people would avoid mentioning they were tech alumni because those were such a valuable commodity uh, in town. Um, so, uh, I mean, college football is wildly popular. Stock car racing. They would frequently have races that drew 100,000 people in, Atlanta, in uh, just outside of Atlanta and Hampton, Georgia. There were many dirt tracks across the state that would draw 7, 8, 9, 10,000 people. Um, you have boating. You have golfing. You have excellent weather for much of the year. You have pro wrestling, as I mentioned earlier. So people had a wide range of interests before the big leagues got to town, and people didn't simply give up on them because there were new teams wearing Atlanta across their chest. So I think for a lot of reasons, Atlanta has some demographic trouble building uh, durable loyalties among its population for its teams. Our guest on the program today is Clayton Truder, and uh, he is the author of a new book called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. And we'll have more with Clayton after these words. It's Kale and Company on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Weed Family Automotive, weedfamilyautomotive.com. Welcome back to the show. It's Kale and Company on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 in the Manchester area. We're presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord. Our guest is Clayton Truder, and uh, he is the author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. So we have about 10 minutes left and so much ground to cover I'll take the the latter part of the the book title. How did Atlanta remake professional sports? Well, I view this book as at its core an origin story for the modern sports business, and this is because Atlanta invents the model that expansion cities started using in an effort to become a big league town. Atlanta had, rolls out the red carpet for the league, aspires to be in all of the different leagues. Their political and corporate leadership walk in lockstep, going out there, hyping Atlanta, promoting it to all corners of the country, promoting it to the major sports league. And also the city makes these offers of public investments in stadiums, which was just becoming the more common approach to, uh, to, to, to finance stadiums. A lot of them had been, uh, had been either basically public parks that got converted into stadiums or were privately financed historically. So Atlanta starts to begin the push in that direction. Um, part of it's also that previous cities that had, had made an effort to become big leagues, whether it's Los Angeles getting baseball or San Francisco, those efforts were very much focused on L.A. wants baseball in the sense of they want a team so people can go watch a specific sport. When Atlanta goes out and pursues pro sports, it, it's for these much broader civic aspirations, this desire for prestige, this desire for unity. This, this sense that Atlanta will be seen as a peer with other significant cities by getting the big league. So Atlanta, as, as a number of the other new pro sports towns like San Diego, Phoenix, Jacksonville, Charlotte, when they went out to try to get the big leagues, it wasn't simply about having an amenity for people to go enjoy. It, it was about the way their city presented itself to the world. Atlanta was very preoccupied with that from an early time period. So both in terms of financing um, the approach Atlanta took in its way to, to try to convince other people to consider their city and also the aspirations they brought to it shaped the way many other cities in the South and West approached trying to get pro sports. It also, in a broader sense, created an arms race among cities. If you're an older pro sports town, Boston or Philadelphia or Chicago or New York, you suddenly have to think about making sure you have top-notch facilities so you can compete with all these other cities that want to become big leagues. Um, as recently as 1995, 
the New York Times did a study, and they concluded that 49 cities in the, in the U.S. could support a Major League Baseball team. Well, there's 30 teams in the, in the league. So there's a lot of cities, if they so desire to, who go out there and push to become Major League. And that just didn't start then, and, and I think it remains the case now that there are a lot more cities that want teams than there are teams available in these leagues despite the expansion. And by there being cities like Atlanta that are willing to go out and try to grab the brass ring, it makes it difficult for cities that already have teams to maintain them. They have to make these same kind of public investments. You know, we talked about Fulton County Stadium, how uh, that was paid for by uh, public funding. And then along came uh, Turner Field. Uh, how was that uh, financed? Well, thank you for helping pay for it as a U.S. taxpayer. Yeah. Um, because of the, because of it, be, it being the site of the Olympics, it ended up being the, the International Olympic Committee, which relies to a large extent on, on taxpayer dollars, which helps to finance that stadium. There was actually some floating debt from a refinancing of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium that was also paid for by the IOC. So the, the final debt on Atlanta Fulton County Stadium got taken care of by the U.S. taxpayers wow. uh, writ large as well. Mm. Um, so that was, and, and then Turner ends up taking on that stadium and it, it becoming Turner Field uh, after having served as the Olympic Stadium in the 96 games. So there was Turner Field, and that was the Braves' home until what year? Uh, uh, through 96, they played there. In 97, after the Olympic, they started moving, they moved to Turner Field, and they, they remained at Turner Field through 2016. And then they, uh, they go to suburbia a little bit, right? A little outside of Atlanta at uh, what was uh, called. Uh, uh, well, it's called Truist Park now, but it didn't start off that way. Yes, it started out as SunTrust Park. It, um, it, uh, and the team moved to Cobb County in 2017. Essentially a, a, a taxing entity out there that consisted of businesses in a particular district, a uh, particular self-taxing district, went on their own, went into business for themselves, negotiated secretly with the Braves because they knew their lease was coming up, at uh, the stadium after 20 years and convinced them to move on to the burbs. Um, I mean, in many ways, it's an understandable move by the Braves. Um, getting people into downtown had always been an issue. There's a lot of transportation uh, issues with Atlanta. First of all, lack of mass transit. Uh, secondly, it just being have, having such a spread out population, putting a team in an affluent northern suburb uh, like in Cobb County made sense. I think it to a great extent reflected where their fan base was. Uh, the team, uh, not long before the... Um, before the move out to uh, Cobb County, released a map which showed off where their season ticket holders were. And they were largely in affluent communities north of Atlanta. So it, uh, in some ways, as a business case, made sense. I mean, it certainly indicated a, a lack of commitment to the actual city of Atlanta uh, on their part. And uh, a lot of people were uncomfortable with the way the whole system was negotiated, the whole plan was negotiated, that people in Cobb County itself really had very little say over it because it was being done by this kind of special taxing entity. So it was kind of an odd situation that got them out there. But thus far, things obviously on the field are going well. They've drawn well. They've built a sort of stadium ballpark village around it called, uh, called the Battery, which is quite popular too. So I would say thus far the experiment's going well. Um, time will tell to see if it's a durable success, though. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, Atlanta was in the news a lot uh, over the past year, uh, first of all, of course, uh, with the loss of the All-Star Game, which cost the area untold millions of dollars in, in revenue, uh, mm -hmm. was, was in fact, in, in, in your opinion, uh, if you want to share it, was Major League Baseball justified in, in removing the All-Star Game from Atlanta, or, or the, at least the Atlanta area? Well, I would say 
when Atlanta got pro sports in the 1960s, it was in part because of the way Atlanta was perceived relative to the rest of the South. Atlanta was the region's clearly most progressive city. It had desegregated on its own well before New Orleans or Memphis or Birmingham or other cities in the region. So its very positive public persona is one of the reasons the big leagues were willing to, to move there. And I think when a city chooses to become major league, for better or worse, the, um, the, the, the local politics end up being part of a national conversation. It certainly helped them in the 60s. It certainly hurt them in, in, this, in this recent example with, with the voting rights talk in Georgia and also the decision to pull out the All-Star game. So I, I think it's, 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 it's something a city has to consider when, when they make this choice to become a part of the national sporting landscape. The things that seem like local matters suddenly become national ones. Increasingly now, of course, with social media and everybody having instant access to everything, it, it, it's very difficult to, to keep something a local issue now because all of a sudden everybody will have a perspective on it. Um, in terms of what Major League Baseball did, I, I think they were in a tough spot. It was a very controversial set of things happening there, and they, they, they ended up making the decision. I, I, I think in terms of it being the year in which Hank Aaron uh, passed away and not having it there was was a very sad and unfortunate circumstance. It would have been a great opportunity to honor him, but uh, it was a very hot button uh, political issue at the time, though certainly. Oh, no doubt, and I guess uh, the region, I'm sure, felt that they got its revenge when the Braves went on to you know get into the postseason and ultimately uh, win the World Series. Yeah, it was a fantastic year for the Braves, and in many ways, I would say surprising too, because if you went to somebody on August 1st and told them the Braves were going to win the World Series, I think a lot of people would have really scratched their head. They played very much like 500 baseball throughout the first few months of the season. They'd win, they'd lose, they'd win, they'd lose. Finally, they turned it around. Their, their pitching, particularly the back end and the bullpen, solidified. They'd had good hitting all along, but... Uh, once the, the pitching solidified, they, they proved to be a contender, and they, they'd been good for several years, and it, and it was it was great to see them uh, uh, win their, their second championship since coming to Atlanta this, this fall. I think most of the nation was rooting for the Braves because of the situation they had been put into earlier that season. So that's just, just my opinion, but I think a lot of the, the country was ro- rooting for them. Oh, I do too. I, I, I think they had a lot of support. No doubt. We just have a couple of minutes left. Have to take a quick break with our guests today on uh, Kale & Company, Clayton Cruder. We'll be back with more on Kale & Company right here on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Welcome back. Just a couple of minutes left in the show, and uh, uh, Clayton Cruder is with us, and Clayton is the uh, Vermont State Chairman of the uh, Society for Baseball Research, or SABRE. And I uh, just want to ask you a couple of quick questions. We only have a couple of minutes left, as I mentioned. And uh, right now we're in the middle of a baseball lockout. What impact could a, a prolonged uh, lockout not only impact Atlanta, but uh, all, all the other major league cities as well? I, th- I think baseball seems to be continually shooting itself in the foot, finding ways to turn, turn people off. I mean, part of it's having these five-hour-long marathon games now that even diehards find a little tedious at times. So I think baseball's struggling with that. Just turning the product off for the second time in three years, basically, with like, a, you know, they had the 60-game season in 2020 with COVID and everything. I think if they have another shortened season like that, it's going to make baseball more niche and niche of an attraction. I mean, baseball certainly has a strong fan base and a, and a, and a, and a large live fan base. I think baseball has a lot, of, a lot of trouble cultivating casual fans now. And I think part of that's just because there's so many entertainment options at this particular historical moment. It, it seems like the NFL, 
in part because it's only a once-a-week thing, seems to be able to continue to capture this, this very large and mass audience. I fear baseball, particularly if they shut down for another year, it's going to be more kids who miss out on those experiences of, I'm going to go see the game with my, with my family, you know, play and catch with my dad, thinking about big base, baseball, big league baseball, that experience. The more and more kids who miss out on, on an aspect of that, I think baseball has always relied on tradition, notions of family, notions of being this, this permanent part of American life to be such a popular and successful activity. And the, the, the more events like this that happen, I think it becomes more difficult for baseball to, to make any claim to that. You know, Clayton Truder, you've been a terrific guest. Really appreciate it. Uh, the book is Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Thank you for being with us today. It's been a great hour. Oh, thanks so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of uh, Kale & Company on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com.